This is a Ward Scott Files advisory. The Ward Scott Files podcast may contain material not suited for people who are easily offended. Trust us on this. This show contains adult information and opinions. Please protect small children, sensitive pets, fragile houseplants, and liberal relatives. Thank you. A warthog. He's going to come up the steps. There he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me! Help! Help! Good morning, good morning. Coach Hog here in the uh, manly warthog man cave today. Inside the Melton Law Studio, which has 50 years of legal, full legal experience, and it's the only official law firm partner of the Gators. And, uh, of course, protected all the time by crime prevention. Patronize our sponsors, of course. Good cleaners on the spot. You know, we'll see. You'll see the list of them here. Good folks. And we thank our, our donors. Well, Kotal Locker Room today and been a tradition I've done now for a while on Mondays. So uh, there's some interesting things going on in the athletic world. Of course, the most uh, precious interest here, I suppose, is the uh, everlasting hope that somehow, some way, the University of Florida will find a reincarnation of um, Steve Spurgeon. How else can we say it? Uh, Steve has everything named after him around these parts, including beer now, which is kind of funny. Uh, in so many ways, but uh, uh, we won't go all into that. But anyway, he's got a beer named after him. He's got a, he named the swamp. He had the hedges put back. He had the artificial turf torn up and the grass put back. And, uh, you know, he's just been around here forever. Um, Coach Graves, when he was, a, uh, Steve was a player, gave him a weight pack to run the stadium steps with. And of course he didn't do it. He gave it to me and uh, I ran the steps with it. So it's uh, one of those old funny stories we've got, but anyway, how we find another Steve Spurrier has been a head scratcher. We thought we had one with urban Meyer and he did indeed do very, very well. He didn't have the folksy charm. Of course, urban Meyer didn't of Steve Spurrier who remains uh, um, really one of the funny, funny folksy guys we've ever had here. And uh, is true to himself and, and uh, has always been just exactly what you see. So um, where are we going to find another one of those? And we keep, we keep our fingers, we keep spending tons of money looking, building facilities and holiday and staff. And, uh, you know, I don't know what all, you know, we were riding to the game. My wife said, whatever happened to the old baseball field? I said, well, it became more of the football deal. So I don't know. There we are. Now we're looking at possibly a dismal season already, basically in terms of Gator expectations, it is because they've lost to Kentucky to whom they used to never lose. And, but, you know, Kentucky's not the same Kentucky. Uh, they lose to LSU, who has one of the rudest bands in the world. I said before the game weekend ever came that that band would play over the Tom Petty tributes at the end of the third quarter. Uh, they always do. They always have. It remains a mystery to me why somebody from the university doesn't 
at least write a letter and say, you know, why, what is wrong with you people? They're the only band that does it. And um, I don't know, just maybe it's part of being raised around the bayou, but it's, um, I predicted it. I mentioned it to some guy who was in the band. He, oh, no, they'll never do that. They're pol- I don't know where this guy's head was, but obviously he didn't know what he was talking about. Uh, the manners of the LSU band, horrible. So, but they win. So I guess they think they've got the right to do what they want to do. Uh, so it's wait till next year again for the Gator. South Carolina will be the last home game. Then there's the huge outdoor cocktail party, which I stopped going to years ago because it just got, it just got too nasty. Um, getting there and parking and then the drinking and the, all that business. It just got too nasty. So, or maybe I got too old. Anyway, I didn't want to go do it anymore. A lot of my friends don't. So that's the way it is. But uh, so Gatorland is a wait again until next year. Uh, I apologize. I apologize. I apologize that it's wait again until next year. But that's the way it is. Now, the other story in college football, which I think is hilarious, is um, the way in which uh, Tennessee reacted when they beat Alabama and Tennessee beat them in their own stadium. Now, I got to tell you, uh, when I first, the first Gator game I remember seeing at the University of Florida, I think was circa 1961. And I guess it was right around there. And FSU tied the University of Florida three to three. Well, come to find out, that was the first time that FSU had become even remotely competitive with the University of Florida. And, and um, it was obvious that um, this was a new dawn, a new relationship between these schools. Turns out, historically, of course, Florida had been the boys' school and FSU had been the girls' school. And it was difficult for the men of Florida to accept the tie from the women, if you will, of FSU. But what happened, and back then we used to dress up formally for the games, Uh, the the, the women, the few that were on the campus, because it was about seven males to every female here then. Now it's the other way around, 60% females on the UF campus. But, um, well, we'd had, wow, we'd have gone crazy if it'd been like that back then. But anyway, Everybody's dressed up in his Sunday finest and in Southern tradition. And all of a sudden, the three to three tie, the stands emptied out and there was a huge slugfest on the field that the cops couldn't stop. I mean, it went on for 20, 25 minutes and the co-eds were in the stands hollering, hit them again harder, harder. Um, I just sat there and watched. I mean, I didn't know what they were so frenzied about. Having just come in here from military school, I thought, wow, is this the way the public university acts? I mean, they'd throw us out of the military school if we did something like this. So uh, I watched it. And after a while, you know, it became pretty obvious that University of Florida wasn't going to put up with this destruction of the field is basically what the complaint was. And for a while there, the field just used to be ringed with cops. Now I know they've got them, but they'd be overwhelmed pretty easily if everybody poured out of the stands the way they did 
at uh, in Tennessee. Now, Jay Busby of Yahoo uh, has had a fun time with this, and I thought it was interesting. First of all, that stadium at Tennessee seats 100,000 people. I mean, it is huge. And um, they, had, they beat Alabama 52 to 49 on the last second field goal. Now, the first time I remember the University of Florida beating Alabama was, I think, 63, maybe 64. Um, and we, I say we, the students, uh, lit a bonfire underneath University and 13th with the flames licking up so high that they're about to catch the traffic light on fire. Now that's a federal highway, 441. And so the gendarmes came in and declared it a riot area. But that was all in celebration over finally beating Alabama. Now we could handle Alabama pretty well when Meyer was here and we had uh, Tebow. And uh, we, we whooped them pretty, pretty summarily. But it, beating Alabama all the way back to the Bear Bryant tradition is a pretty heady ob objective. So here Tennessee is finally getting it together as they have had their own pursuit of victory there the same way we've had it and are having it since we don't have a Steve Spurrier. So uh, this is the first time that Tennessee beat Alabama in 15 years. Um, think about that. And the, 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 the field, the fans couldn't take it. Uh, they packed the field. Uh, they lit up cigars. Um, parents held it. Jay, Jay Busby writes it. Parents held their children on their shoulders. Couples and families posed for photos that will end up on Christmas cards. Chants, profane, joyous. Um, um, <laughs> they play, <laughs> Nayland Stadium played Dixieland Delight. Uh, this is a Tennessee-based song that Alabama has co-opted as its own. I guess everybody's got a song. Uh, we've got the Tom Petty song. So they've got the Dixieland songs there. And uh, then, uh, and this is, I only saw, I only saw this happen in, in uh, when we went up to travel to Ole Miss to uh, play Ole Miss out there. And we had uh, a pretty good team then. Uh, memory fails me as to who our coach was and our quarterback went on. Somebody will remember it. Our quarterback went on to play for the Chicago Bears. But anyway, Ole Miss beat us. And Ole Miss charged the field and tore their goalpost down. Now, tearing goalposts down is a big, big deal. Um, that, that is no light matter, literally, in tearing it down. And then secondly, what are you going to do now? So uh, uh, the, the average goalpost weighs, according to the writer here, about 900 pounds. Uh, it's impossible to lift by yourself. But the crowd, of course, delirious, uh, they can do it. Uh, they pulled down the south goalpost, uh, which is the one that the kid McGrath kicked the game winner through. They pulled up the center post out of the ground and detached the two uprights. And at the other end of the stadium, they ripped the crossbar right off the post. And then the post disappeared into the crowd. And Jay, uh, the writer here, writes that every once in a while, uh, like a surfboard 
in the surf, <laughs> the, the post would reappear in the crowd and uh, to the hoots and delight of, uh, of the guys who were carrying it and toting it. It's a, a 30 foot high and it's 18 foot wide. How do you get that out of the stadium? Uh, so it was much easier to separate the goalposts at the crossbar uh, than to move a single upright goalpost of the, uh, you know, to get it out of the stadium. So those single deals disappeared into the night. Um, the intact U-shaped north goalpost circled the field and eventually was tossed up through the stands, but they couldn't get it through any of the exits. And South Crossbar, though, uh, it was just wide enough to get out the northeast exit. And the Tennessee fans worked together, Jay writes, for the greater good to get it out. Um, the quarterback kid, Hooker, probably going to leap to the top of the Heisman conversation. Uh, he, he's uh, finished with 385 yards on 21 of 30 passing with five touchdowns and uh, one inconsequential, as it turned out, interception. So uh, the fans working the south crossbar out of the northeast entrance uh, demonstrated, according to our writer, some impressive common sense. They work the bar. Now, think about if we could do this as a country politically, work together <laughs> to do for the common good <laughs> to, to, to achieve an objective. Here the fans work together and negotiated uh, over an eight-foot fence, um, worked the bar up and held it up in the northeast stands, and then several fans rode atop the crossbar and guided it like Santa leading his sleigh, and the crossbar carrying crew reached the outer end of the stadium, and working as one, they got the two ends of the crossbar out of gate, way too narrow for it to go through head on. I mean, this, is, this beats, really, of the fight that I saw on Florida Field circa 1961 uh, between the FSU and Florida fans, which didn't, couldn't be broken up, finally died of its own energy after about 45 minutes. But um, the, uh, <laughs> then local law enforcement finally gets involved. They force the crew to drop the uh, crossbar and disperse. And uh, uh, one of the guys, one of the kids, uh, he put his name on the crossbar, but he put it down as Alexander and Joseph. He said he didn't want to get arrested. Uh, so anyway, there, there you are. Um, you know, it, it, it's just, that's the frenzy that went up. Now, th that's not the end of the story. <laughs> now, now, I think this is pretty interesting. I don't think we've ever had a Coach Hogg's locker room like this. Um, they, um, as soon as it finished, now this is a WKRN article, um, the um, a, a news sister station, WATE also, they uh, have got a link for a fundraising page because philanthrop uh, philanthropic annual gifts now are going to be have to be directed uh, toward the purchase of new goalposts. And so they have got a link now. And I suppose anybody can pay. It doesn't have to be Tennessee fans. But the suggested payment amounts that you may send in um, or $16 for the number of seasons since the Vols last beat Alabama. 
or you may send in $52.49, cent, as they say in Georgia, $52.49 for the final score of the game, or you can send in, if you're so inclined, $1,019.15, which represents the capacity of the sold-out Neyland Stadium crowd, 101000 uh, at 915. So <laughs> the fund for the new goalposts, which was only this, this link was only put up on Sunday at 219 p.m. But six hours later, it had already received $59,819, which is about 39% of its goal for the goalposts. I'll be darned. Isn't that something now? I mean, come on, brother. Um, you know, of course, why not? Huh? Why not? Well, the field goal is what is what uh, is what won it. And field goals have become more and more a part of the game. And, you know, the last conventional field goal kicker that I remember was um, probably George Blanda, but the great one back in the day was Lou the Toe Groza for the Cleveland Browns. Now, Lou the Toe and Blanda, if I got it right, uh, they were conventional, if you will, field goal kickers. Along comes the soccer kicker. And one of you out there, you one of you athletic athletic historians might recall better than I, when we first began to see football modified by soccer is one way to look at it because the soccer field goal kick replaced the Lou, the toe Groza straight on kick. I remember when I was helping coach at Gainesville high, uh, Alan Reeves was our kicker. And he kicked straight away. I don't recall us having in the mid-60s a soccer kicker, extra point or field goal kicker. Now it's all done field goal kicking style. If somebody knows of a place where it's done the other way, it's probably an anomaly. I don't ever see it in college or in the pros. Um, so now we've got more and more of these games are being decided, it seems, on what the uh, Wall Street Journal has called the rise of the long field goal. And uh, let's, let's just talk a minute about where we are with that darn field goal. Um, it is a really uh, um, quite interesting when you isolate it as a component of the game because <clears throat> these guys, are specialists. They're not even punters usually. They're just the field goal kicker. And yet so much pressure is on them. Um, Andrew Beaton wrote this for their, this analysis of, of the field goal kicker. Uh, the Baltimore Ravens, for example, have a guy named Justin Tucker, who just made, although by the time this was written, uh, which was uh, today, um, they might have been beaten already. I don't know. But the longest field goal 
in NFL history. It was a 58-yarder. Now, uh, Harborough, the coach, was aware of the risk from that far away because the, if the kicker missed the kick, it would give the Bengals the ball back near uh, midfield. And uh, there was so much faith, though, in uh, Justin Tucker by Coach John Harborough that he said it skipped the scales toward the field goal kicker. Now, this is the evolution of the field goal kicker in the importance of football, which we're going to talk about for now. The kickers, according to the data, uh, routinely attempt and make field goals from distances that would have been once upon a time unthinkable. Uh, the kickers are more powerful. They're more accurate. Uh, 23% uh, this season uh, of field goal attempts have been from over 50 yards. That's almost a quarter of the field goal attempts have been made from over 50 yards. The previous high, which was last year, was 18%. So we're just in the sixth week of the NFL season, and already um, the NFL teams have attempted more field goals of 50-plus yards than they did in the entire uh, Garo, your premium. Yeah, I remember that person. Uh, than they did in the entire 2000 season. Um, now, Tucker missed a fixed 56-yard kick in the team's loss to the New York Giants. Uh, the Steelers, Chris Boswell, hit a 55-yard that bounced off the crossbar and over, and that beat the Buccaneers 20-18. to 18. So kickers are stronger than ever, and the rules are important because they've weakened the rush up the middle on attempts and long snappers. Long snappers are very precious. Uh, they are so protected. They have got to be able to whip it back there accurately. And, of course, the holder must spin it the laces away and get it going. So all of these things in the rule adjustments are also working in favor of the kicker. Uh, every NFL team has to have a kicker um, uh, in the range now of over 50 yards. Otherwise, you're going to have to go get another kicker. So this strategic shift are influencing the coaches who are more prone to letting their kickers try at distances uh, where there probably maybe even isn't a high probability proposition. Um, so this has had an enormous influence on the game. You can see it didn't even go into overtime in Tennessee in college. Uh, that is what excited the fans so much. It was field goal saved from the uncertainty of the overtime with Alabama. So now the options of trying to keep the ball or give it back to the team with a punt uh, are, have been changed, and they're keeping track of this data in the NFL. So now long field goals can result in three points or giving the opposing team the ball near midfield. That's the risk that the coaches have to calculate. And 
so far, the kickers are helping the coaches decide in favor of the kickers. Sunday, there were 18 for 22 kicks from 55 to 60 yards. Um, they're, uh, um, so you're seeing the coaches more and more willing to try them from a distance. Um, it's, um, it's a gray zone. Um, there's still a, a lot of studying to be done on where a team is far enough out that it could still be close enough to risk the kick or to go for a fourth down conversion or to just turn the ball over. But the idea of punting, and you do see, it seems now that I think about it, fewer and fewer punts in the game. Because here we go. If we got a field goal kicker who can peg it from the other side of midfield pretty statistically regularly, then we don't want to punt. Um, punting from inside the opponent's 40-yard line is down to 44% from a decade ago. So um, the, the longest attempt of the season uh, from 64 yards out uh, missed in the final seconds in September in the 17-16 loss uh, for the Denver Broncos. So this, uh, it's, it's going on out there. And uh, um, it, it, is a, it is a really keeps the crowd excited. Um, they, they're not uh, exactly sure that, uh, you know, the thing is uh, going to miss. It's, it's really right on the edge. And that is good for football, I think. The jury is less and less out on that. We'll take a, little, a break a little bit early here on uh, um, the just a few minutes early on the Ward Scott Files. We'll go back with an update on some local and then uh, get into the weathers and the sponsors with you. So we're going to break for the halftime right now. Thank you. Although the owner of Lewis Oil Company maintains she is 29, Lewis Oil turns 60 years old in June. Chevron would like to recognize the North Florida second-generation family-owned business, celebrating its growth and staying power. Lewis Oil Company maintains significant on-hand supplies, strategically located fuel depots, a delivery fleet, on-site service, fuel card locks, and convenience stores. Lewis Oil Company understands its responsibility in the local economy by providing service and delivery on on demand and in crisis. As a first responder for 18 Florida counties and the southeast from Texas to Virginia, we are proud of this rare accomplishment. Lewis Oil delivers. This is Ward Scott, and I want to thank all our sponsors who keep the show going and pay the bills. The Ward Scott Files premium sponsors are Crime Prevention Security Systems, large enough to serve you, small enough to care. Melvin Law, the only official injury partner of the Florida Gators. The Ward Scott Files Gold sponsors are Lewis Oil Company, Shoot GTR, On the Spot Dry Cleaners, RR Construction, and Style Cuts. If you are interested in promoting your business on the show, you can visit our website, www.wardscottfiles.com and click on the Advertise Here banner on the right side of the page or call my friend Freddie at 352-284-3733. Again, thank you to all the great businesses that support the Ward Scott Files. And remember, if you like the show, thank our sponsors and support the businesses that support us. What you just said 
is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. May God have mercy on your soul. Or that very much surprises me that you've never been tased. You can't handle the truth! All bees poop. Warthog. He's gonna come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me! Help! Help! Now for the weather brought to you by Lewis Oil. Coach Hogg's locker room, we talked about the significance, the rising influence of the long field goal in football. And it was such a dramatic event in the Tennessee-Alabama game that it resulted in um, quite a crowd-enthusiastic reaction to it that is now being paid through a link. If you want to pay, if you feel so inclined to help um, replace the torn-down goalposts at Tennessee, uh, you may find the link, I'm sure, somewhere out the web. I don't think I should give a link to a Tennessee goalpost fund as a University of Florida Gator graduate. Do you? Well, the weather is getting ready to change. We're getting ready here, as Plantation Mark says, get out the long underwear and a coat. Particularly Mark, he's a little farther north than we are. But even here, my friends, in God's country, in the piney woods of north central Florida, uh, we are going to get perhaps down into the 40s here in the next couple of days. And that is going to be dramatic, of course. For those of us who have the cattle, it's going to signal probably even increasing approaching need to haul hay. Um, some of you have traveled 241 and seen uh, the rolled up hay in the big fields. And thank goodness we have enough field here to still the roll the hay. Because once we start getting these cold nights, we really shock the, the grass into no growth. And, and then we use a lot of nutrients out of, out of it as well. So that is getting ready to occur here, probably as early as maybe tomorrow or as late as Wednesday. Right now we're at 72 degrees. Uh, things were pretty pleasant. Um, um, yesterday was a very pleasant day. Uh, Chamber of Commerce weather, as they like to say, but that will be changing very, very soon. Um, on the national front, um, we don't see any hurricanes coming our way. Um, the early season snow may come to the north, as we've been talking about. Certainly, there's going to be winter-like cold that we're going to have some of that's going to come charging across the eastern U.S. with snow. So we're getting into a change of seasons. We'll probably come out here on this side uh, uh, of this cold thing here where we are with another set of 80-degree days. But anyway, get ready. You may be able to have your first far, um, perhaps not in your indoor fireplace, but we've got several outdoor fire pits here at the farm, and uh, we like to burn um, um, debris sometimes in them. And um, we might just strike up one of those and have a, have a toddy by the fire for the first time. So uh, that's the weather here, and we just finished up Coach Hall's locker room. 
Doug Whitaker is living in a place of the world where the weather really doesn't change much. I think a year round in Ahiheke, Mexico, by Lake Chapala is around the 70s. Um, so that's that's uh, that's got a lot of things good to say about it. Basically, no bugs. You actually can uh, have a dinner on a patio and not have to worry about the bugs because the bugs don't like to fly up at that altitude and don't hang out in that temperature. So that's one of the nice things about being there. Uh, I've got just a little bit of local news for you. Um, I don't think this is going to amount to much. I've been researching it with some people, but nevertheless, you need to know about it. There is filed in the circuit court of the eighth judicial circuit, a uh, Eugene B. Garvin, who's a plaintiff, is versing Mary Helen Wheeler, who is a candidate for the county commission and a current county commissioner. Now, if you recall, she's the one who got confused about where she really lived and got all of a sudden a panic attack and got guilty about it and went down and paid a bunch of back taxes and tried to rearrange a bunch of documents to get them in order so that she could continue to do what so many people do, uh, which is disingenuous about districts, is basically a district and where you reside is anywhere you put your head down. So in my humble opinion, looking back at what she did, she overreacted. She really didn't need to go do these corrective measures. Um, but nevertheless, she did. But she's doing basically what everybody's been doing who needs to do it. Um, and that is claim a homestead in one place, but have a residence in another in that district that you quote unquote supposedly represent and um, maintain it. How do you maintain it? Well, whatever it takes to establish it as a, as a place, it's maintained. You don't even have to go to it. Oh, you might get followed once in a while, but nobody ever does. So anyway, but nevertheless, there is a, a, going to be a non-jury uh, hearing uh, is set for Thursday, November the 3rd. The election is, let me check my notes here, is a week later, November 8th. And this is going to be before a judge. And it's going to be a hearing, they're going to hear an argument um, that um, she really didn't uh, perform according to the way in which um, you should perform if you're honest about where you live and, and uh, whether or not you can be penalized for that and should be penalized for it. And so this hearing, in my humble opinion, from what I can determine, is uh, not going to amount to anything. It's a non-jury trial hearing set for two hours. It will be uh, um, in uh, the courtroom has not been announced yet. It will be at 201 East University Avenue in the Family and Civil Justice Center. And I uh, just put that on your plate so that you'll know about it. You won't hear it about it through the Gainesville Sunset or Channel 20. Um, the um, argument is going to be whether there's any penalty that she should suffer for having had this lapse of judgment about really where she lived. Um, you remember, this is a deal that both Alfred and Wheeler got into 
um, there were criminal charges uh, sworn out against them because they had been less than genuine on documents that they had signed to pretend they lived where they did. And um, they made this all right by going back and paying the taxes they escaped having to pay because as I understand it, the property appraiser missed them because they didn't show up where they said they, uh, where they really needed to show up and they showed up somewhere else. Let me just advise you that where you reside, given the ambiguity of the Florida statute is much too murky for the courts. You think the courts don't wanna wade in on the Trump deal? They don't wanna wade in on this single member district fiasco either. They're not gonna wade in on the hypocrisy that you say you represent a certain district, but you don't have to actually homestead there. You must just maintain a residence there. And you only have to maintain the residence five, no later than five days after you win. So you first can get to wait to see if you win the seat. Then if you win the seat, you can wait for up to five days to run out and get a mailing address. It can't be a post office box. And that becomes your residence in the district in which you say you represent. But we all know you don't represent the district. That's the, that's the big lie because everybody in the county votes for you. Now, I predict this will be so confusing for the public that they won't understand what they're voting for or against with a single member district issue that's on the ballot this fall. I don't see how they will. They don't know, where they, they don't know what they're voting for now or how it works. And certainly the courts are not gonna get into it. The courts are not gonna to try to interpret what the legislation has left deliberately vague because both parties use this. Here in this county, it's primarily used by the Democrat party because they're the prevailing party. So they're not gonna do anything about this. Home basically is where you lay your head. And that's it, case closed. So. If you don't like it, vote for single member districts. If it doesn't bother you, continue with the status quo. I mean, this is very simple. Um, how is the single member district campaign going? I don't even know that there is one plantation, Mark. I haven't heard a single peep. I haven't seen anything. I've seen, no, I've heard no, the big thing about it is to educate like I'm doing right now to try to help you understand what the issue is. I've not seen anything. I don't think there's anything. I, I haven't seen anything. I mean, I want you know, maybe it'll ramp up towards a close. Maybe the maybe the powers that be think, well, we don't want to waste our thunder right now having a campaign mail out too early because people just throw it in a pile, won't know what they read anyway. So maybe they're waiting to jack it closer to the actual voting date, uh, which is, you know, what did I say it was? November. Um, 10th, something like that. So, you know, maybe it's coming. I don't know, but no, it's not even going on right now, Mark, that I know of, unless somebody knows something I don't know. So um, it's just one of those things that once upon, you know, once again is a, something that voting public doesn't understand. They don't, they don't have a clue. Well, 
I wanted to pay a little time here talking about the Parkland jury, which has been controversial because of course the killer did not get the death penalty. He got life in prison. And someone sent me, but I'm gonna ask production to run for you in a moment. Sheriff Grady Judd's comments on the Parkland jury decision. And I thought, why should I talk about it? He talks about it so well. Perhaps my audience has not seen it. So we'll share it with my audience. Production, can we put that up now? This is Sheriff Grady Judd at a press conference when asked about his thoughts on the Parkland jury recommendation for life instead of the death penalty for the killer. The Nicholas Cruz verdict, I think you all know about that. That's from the massacre at Parkland, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. First and foremost, I'm on the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas Commission, so I've seen a deep dive into that entire event from when the shooter was a child, and I don't even like to speak his names through my lips, to, until the horrible tragedy and massacre occurred. Quite frankly, my first response is nothing that comes out of Broward County surprises me. If there's ever been anyone on the face of the earth that deserved the death penalty, it was that evil, violent, murdering piece of trash that massacred those children. But I want you to understand that when the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas law passed, and among other things, the commission was created, the very last school board to come in compliance with that law in the state of Florida was the Broward County school system. Did you hear what I said? We had to force the Broward County school system to comply with a law and ground zero that created that law was a shooting and a massacre at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas. Was I shocked that they didn't give him the death penalty? No. Was I surprised that they didn't give him the death penalty? No. But I can tell you, it, with the rule of law, we're going to respect, obviously, what the jury recommends, and the ju judge, if she hasn't, will sentence him to life in prison. There's never been a more cold, calculated, premeditated murder than that. And if you can't get the death penalty for that in Broward County, that's not a safe county to live in. How are schools safer now? Schools have always been safe. They're even safer than they've ever been. Because of horrible shootings around the country, even prior to the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas law, 
Here in Polk County, our school system, we have all worked together with our colleagues from the police departments and certainly as the sheriff's office, I am contracted to be in charge of safe schools for our school district. We were working on safety and security systems even before Marjorie Stoneman Douglas occurred. But now we have better systems, better processes, better follow up on students that say things that could appear to be violent or dangerous. So we never say never. And I always tell folks anytime I give my Marjorie Stoneman Douglas presentation, if you can have an active shooter in a one-room wooden school, Amish school, in the countryside of Pennsylvania, you can have an active shooter any place. But I can tell you the probabilities have been reduced by the security measures that's been put in place, not only in our school district, but now throughout the state of Florida. Is there improvements to be made? Yes. Are there still folks that are not doing what they should? Yes. But as a system, we see systemic improvements all over this state in the school systems and the cooperation between law enforcement and our schools and our community. But I underscore, I don't have enough angry words to say about the Broward school system. They resi uh, resisted. They resisted. Let me say that one more time. They resisted all of the laws and all of the systems and processes that the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas law was created to protect our students the most of any county in the state of Florida. And that's where the children were killed. So when you go home tonight, hug your children a little tighter. When you go home tonight in Broward County, hug your children a little tighter and thank God that your child was not in that school, in that location, to be massacred like so many children were. And then understand that will your child get justice in Broward County? I saw the headlines and the presentations. You know, I could, I could talk about this like forever and you're gonna get tired of it in a minute. Oh, but he had this mental health issue. Well, when's the last time you've seen a sane, normal human being do an active shooter event? Never. They all have a hitch in their giddy up. All of them have issues. And he was no different. But they bought into all that baloney as opposed to sentencing him to the death penalty times every person that was murdered. That was their decision. They've got to live with it. Okay. No, I don't think the verdict one way or the other scares people off because people that are that deranged and that fanatical don't pay any attention to that. 
that is only the appropriate penalty for the conduct he carried out. This is the world's first adjustable Well, 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 thank you very much. I think if I'm watching to see if I'm live here now. Yes, I am. Tractor Maddox, Sheriff Brady Judd doesn't mince any words and um, he's probably as well known, if not the best known sheriff in the state. He's um, probably speaks the mind for a lot of sheriffs who don't have um, the personality that he does, which is, uh, you know, straightforward, tell it like it is kind of guy. It's my understanding from some of the comments I'm seeing here that a, a single juror held that up and wouldn't vote for it. The others wanted it. Um, that's the system, I, I guess. That's, we could talk about that again. But we both know the story. And uh, I think it's particularly interesting the way in which he deduces that you're not safe in Broward County. That's Fort Lauderdale, you know. And um, it's not too far behind that here, many people think, in Alachua County. We've got the same kind of anti-cop attitude. I know our sheriff here is concerned about being adequately funded because he's got to go to a predominantly Democrat-controlled county commission, which is essentially been on the record as being anti-cop, defunding the cops, and a knee-jerk reaction Robert Carl Hutch Hutchison, the communist commissioner, former commissioner, just declared, you know, when the Darnell was a sheriff, why do you bother to arrest people for marijuana? And uh, she says, it's because it's the law. You don't like it, change the law. So that revealed what, and he was sort of the spokesman and the representative mentality of the Democrat Party when he said that. And uh, it's all this notion that Sheriff Judd alludes to that somehow the individual is not responsible for his actions, that any number of things could have happened, born on the wrong side of the tracks, or, or as I think it was a stone said, I was born in a crossfire hurricane. And, um, you know, so a lot of these people, they think were born in a crossfire hurricane, and therefore, whatever behavior they visit upon innocent people is excusable and should be uh, treated as uh, humane in some way. And it's, it's, um, it's a real dilemma until you can get people in office that think differently and probably you won't until their particular life is affected by that which they are busy forgiving and through extenuating circumstances. So it's um, worth commenting on. And I thought Sheriff Judd had the best comments that people have asked me about so many times, justice and how the court system works and you know, all the way down to why do you send the SWAT team to uh, arrest uh, at gunpoint innocent people in a commercial civil argument? Um, no, we've never gotten an answer for that. I think eventually we will get an answer. So there is some blame to go around on 
all sides, although generally I think the scales are tipped and uh, the police are being overblamed and under understood. Um, this whole business about the dog, uh, as if it were the dog's fault or the cop's fault. The guy ran, he didn't disclose where he was. Uh, he had, he'd been convicted already. So he had a pattern, he had a gun, the whole, he had about nine strikes against him and he knew it, which is why he took off running. Uh, you know, come on, and, you know, when, when are we gonna, but, but you know, this is where we are right now. This is where we are. And I thought I'd put that in there. Um, the last comments I'll make here are not mine. They're really the comments of, of all things. Um, um, I think I've got it here in my notes. The um, New York Times. The New York Times is a liberal, 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 as you know, publication. But Christopher Caldwell has written an opinion about January 6th. And he says that the January 6th inquiry being led by the crowd that you know hasn't moved the needle one bit in terms of the public's attitude about what the committee calls a riot. Not one bit. People who held the opinions about the election going into it, the January 6th committee meetings, still hold them. And so why haven't they changed? Well, the people don't have any faith in the grandiose and ideological manner in which the committee has conducted its inquiry. And it's been so transparent that it's a stacked deck that people are not interested in anything the committee finds. They don't even believe that it was as severe as the committee has been trying to make it out. And they see into the attempt to once again, blame the guy who's lived rent free in their heads since he came down the escalator. So this is in the New York Times. These are the opinions of Christopher Caldwell in the New York Times. He says that the January, I'm saying this so that the censors who are listening to this won't blame me, okay? This is their paper. You know, the censors are liberal. The censors tolerate anything that comes out of the New York Times. So censors, as you listen to me, I am quoting the New York Times. According to Mr. Caldwell, the January 6th committee has set itself up less as investigators than defenders of America's democracy, which they themselves have violated. They're too partisan to deliver this 
message credibly. And there's almost no opposition checks, no balance in the committee. No overruling opinions or no debate of opinions. Meanwhile, citizens don't mind if the matter were examined freely and doggedly and fairly, according to Mr. Caldwell, opinion writer for the New York Times. who says it is not unconstitutional to question the integrity of an election. And a person who does so is not necessarily an enemy of democracy. Mr. Censor, who's listening to me, and by the way, go to Rumble, where we're now streaming, and follow the Ward Scott files. We fired YouTube. Mr. Caldwell writes, it is not unconstitutional to question the integrity of an election and a person who does so is not necessarily an enemy of democracy. And Mr. Caldwell doesn't feel or believe that the elaborate definition of the behavior that day fits the need demonstrated and practiced by the committee. Now the Wall Street Journal has addressed the same thing and they have addressed it critically, the committee. Um, their position is that this extraordinary subpoena to a former president saying there are more than 30 witnesses in our investigation um, who invoked the Fifth Amendment um, is dubious given the behavior of the Justice Department, the FBI, in the history of the pursuit of their demon, Trump. Because you see that you have to take into account also. So I don't know what you think about it, but the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal are on the same page. Can you believe it? I mean, it's incredible. They're on the same page. They think it was a stacked deck with a loaded outcome for political reasons. Well, thanks for listening to the Word Scott Files today. Hopefully you'll have a, a great rest of the day. See you soon. Warthog Command Center out.